and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to peruse Counterpunch Plus. This brand new subscriber section that we've launched is really an exciting new feature in Counterpunch. Although that print magazine has been officially retired and sent to a better place, we have now Counterpunch Plus that will help us to navigate through these insane times. Yes, everyone's doing subscriber content. Yes, this is the way that things go. But by supporting Counterpunch in this way, you continue excellent content coming to you. You help us to keep the lights on to producing uh, things like a podcast, but also all of the merchandise, the books that are published, and of course, also the content that comes to you every single day. We're in the middle of a fun drive. It's a great time to show your support for Counterpunch. Tax-deductible donation, always a great way to, um, well, make a tax-deductible donation and keep Counterpunch going. So um, please do consider it. Please do consider becoming a supporter of Counterpunch. Listen, we need media in this time, especially media that's not not only not beholden to corporate interests or to foreign governments or anything like that, but media that's willing to be critical, self-critical, critical of the left when it's necessary and so forth. Counterpunch is all of those things. So please do consider becoming a supporter. You can also follow my work at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. Lots more content, podcasts, and other things there. So i um, very happy to turn to my guest today, friend of mine here to talk about an excellent new book that he's published. Really excited to talk about it and to make some connections with maybe some of the things that are happening today. Ian Scott Horst is with us. Um, Ian has written an excellent new book entitled Like Ho Chi Minh, Like Che Guevara, The Revolutionary Left in Ethiopia, 1960. 1969 to 1979. Ian is a revolutionary and a writer based in Brooklyn, New York. Ian, welcome to Counterpunch. Thank you, Eric. I'm happy to be talking to you. Very happy to have you. Very happy to read this this book. I mean, what a pleasure. What a joy. Not only uh, the writing of the book, but, but, but really to learn more about what was going on in Ethiopia. It's a subject that I've always been interested in, but yet there's been so little written about it. So it's just it's really filling a needed void here. So I'm going to jump right into our conversation if I could. I'd like you to help us understand why you wrote about this. Where was your personal connection to this story? How did this come about and how long did all of this take? I arrived in college in the 1970s uh, somewhat naively anticipating that the you know revolutionary student movement that I had grown up seeing as a background to the news was still there. And I went shopping for the left and I I found it. It was kind of um, the late 70s. There's a, a, a very different moment on the left, but uh, college campuses were full of every imaginable left group and huge numbers of radical students from all over the world. This was um, before the Iranian Revolution. It was it was during um, the national liberation struggle in Eritrea, and it was during the Ethiopian Revolution. And there were young people, more or less my age, who were intensely connected to the revolutions back home. And they put on all sorts of programs and events. And I became fascinated with this notion of young people uh, across the, the globe fighting a revolution and, and actually at that very time uh, really suffering for, for their views and, and being violently and horribly suppressed. And I followed the unfolding of it all for years and years, and I picked up... Um, as much of the literature as I could, and I talked to people and stayed in contact with um, people as the best as I could, and, and most importantly, with the struggle itself. And um, over the years, I uh, of my own activism, you know, waning in and coming back, um, I realized that there was a, a a kind of a lost story, but that in the left's memory, um, they had really failed to uh, understand what had happened in Ethiopia. And um, I uh, really felt 
this this need to share what I had learned, and so I started to 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 reread all the original resources that I had um, picked up over the years, and uh, the um, the Ethiopian student movement uh, as a global movement was quite extraordinary and um, hugely political, very very revolutionary and left wing. And uh, the study of Leninism was the, was the main currency of this movement um, in the late 60s and early 70s at a time when um, socialist and communist ideas were, were more accepted, but not necessarily uh, what you would be expecting um, the, the main agenda of, a, of a, an international student movement to, to have. And um, so I came up with this idea of trying to tell the story of what happened in Ethiopia using as many of the, uh, the voices of um, the struggle as possible. So rather than focusing on um, uh, the facts and figures of political economy, which are, are certainly really important, um, I wanted to study on the the discussion of the political issues, the experience of politics, the experience of the events, the highs and the lows of experiencing a revolution and then watching it um, be smashed. And um, so I was just able to, to in, in, in my book, what I'm really proud of is being able to tell the story, not only with my own narrative, but um uh, hundreds of original documents. Um, they did a lot of their work in English. Uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit I'm completely illiterate in Amharic, which is the main language in, in Ethiopia. Um, but fortunately, their political culture, um, for a lot of very complicated reasons, was initially conducted largely in English, which means the historical record is accessible to those of us in the English-speaking world. Um, and uh, I also... Uh, it, it's It's the 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 time of century when when people who survived the period are are writing their own memoirs and mostly publishing them uh like self-publishing them and things so i tracked down a whole bunch of these and i wove together a story that is you know as much in in the original voices as as in my voice uh and it's a point of view that um you would really not find uh, near the top of the stack in, in terms of uh, hi historical memory and the, the, the state of world politics today. I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about the standard narrative of the revolution in in Ethiopia, how it's taught, say, if you were just to take a regular intro course to this, or if you were to pick up the, uh, you know, navigate to the Wikipedia page or whatever, what is the standard narrative of this? And how does the picture that you have painted, the, the story that you have told, differ from that? Nobody disagrees that there was... Um a once very powerful monarchy in Ethiopia, which had, um, aside from a, a few years at the beginning of the Second World War, never been conquered by imperialism, but by the time of the 60s and 70s was uh, uh, hopelessly corrupt and, and failing to meet the needs of Ethiopians. And we all remember um, you know, the pictures of, of children starving, not only from the 1980s when things like Bob Geldof and all, but was from the 1970s was was kind of the it was one of the the, the great African famines um, that uh, you know pinged people's sympathies. And and um, what happened in Ethiopia was that people finally understood that the, the government wasn't really taking care of people anymore. The, the, the emperor was fantastically wealthy um, and completely letting a huge portion of his country starve to death. And that combined with um, a wave of price increases um, around the time of the OPEC oil embargo in the early 70s, um, uh, created a mass movement that uh, challenged uh, the empire for power um, and the emperor was actually overthrown after months of popular unrest and uh, 
a military committee, which was called the DERG after the Amharic word for committee, um, seized power. And the, the DERG uh, rather immediately instituted something called Ethiopian socialism, uh, spent a couple of years engaged in some, some fairly impressive reforms, although some of them proved to be uh, somewhat riddled with, with loopholes. Um, and then um, in 1977, one of the, the, the three leaders of the DERG um, seized power from the others and uh, two things happened at once. He instituted a close alliance with the Soviet Union and Cuba and uh, fought a war with an invading army from neighboring Somalia. Um, Somalia had had been Soviet supported until that very moment and uh, uh, completely switched sides um, to uh, actually uh, Mengistu and the Derg had also been funded by the United States imperialism up until that that very moment um, but in in that that sort of realignment that happened the Mengistu government issued this kind of clarion call for an anti-imperialist struggle against Somalia and its presumed American backers. Uh, in, in the event, the Ethiopian government uh, defeated Somalia, also at the same time, at least temporarily defeated um, internal dissent and uh, the Eritrean struggle that was unfolding in the um, uh, northern areas of um, you know, what was then the state of Ethiopia. After he consolidated power, he um, uh, arranged for the country to be run by a the Workers' Party of Ethiopia and really um, built a, a political structure on the model of, um, say, Soviet satellites in, in Eastern Europe, the very, very top-down structure. Um, so what is what is remembered hist historically about all of this is some vague notion of uh, an, uh, an unled uprising that was uh, then steered by uh, a military which apparently moved leftwards, became socialist, and instigated uh, you know a period of socialism in Ethiopia, um, which, which the the, the derg was actually ultimately overthrown after. Some very complicated events in in, in 1999, 19, excuse me, 1991, which is um, sort of after the period of, of of that my book really focuses on, although it, it touches briefly on what happens then. I think that most people have ha heard that Ethiopia had a socialist government. Um, the fact that there's a lot of pictures of of Mangistu and Fidel Castro um, clearly enjoying each other's company. This is a, this is a strong image that informs leftist point of view, you know, the sense that Ethiopia is a, you know, a lost socialist country on the order of, you know, all the states in, in, uh, in Eastern Europe and elsewhere in Africa that, um, you know, got sponsorship from the Soviet Union. Um, and it is in fact, actually, that's, it's actually a real distortion of, of what happened. Um, it, it's, it's certainly true that the Derg regime instituted some, some popular reforms and, you know, attempted to repudiate imperial rule. But looking at the Ethiopian revolution as the story of the military regime misses out on the real struggle that was going on under the surface that is something that should be really important, especially to those of us in, in the United States, but I, I guess anywhere who are, who are actually engaged in trying to uh, uh, you know, rebuild a revolutionary movement and think about what that would look like in, in our own societies. In point of fact, the, um, this revolutionary student movement that I talked about um, was making... Um, was forming organizations in secret, um, was making serious, serious plans to actually wage revolution in Ethiopia. And um, the significant period between 
increased, increased imperial repression against the student movement at the end of the 1960s and the Ethiopian revolution in 1974 marked this filtering down um, through society of a lot of the political experiences of the student movement, a whole generation of students, you know, left university and, and took on jobs. Um, although capitalism was relatively undeveloped in Ethiopia, civil service was huge. The educational establishment that Haile Selassie had developed kind of was a, he, he set up this own Trojan horse um, against his regime. So this by, by, by so insisting on the education of this huge layer of um, a whole generations of Ethiopians, he had cr created people who were, uh, you know, far more politically advanced um, than anybody needed to expect. So in, in uh, uh, there were two civilian leftist organizations. Well, there, there are more than two. There were two main ones that had been formed secretly uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. One was called the All-Ethiopian Socialist Movement, commonly referred to as Mason, and the other was the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Party, although it didn't bear that name until 1975. It had been formed all, also in Europe, although its uh, headquarters were actually in Algiers. Um, and these groups um, behind the scenes in exile and at home were engaged in all sorts of organizing activities uh, including, uh, you know, getting arms and training and all this sort of stuff um, in preparation for what was going to happen in that they understood was going to happen very soon in Ethiopia. And there became a difference between these two organizations about uh, how quickly the revolution would come to Ethiopia. And when it came, I think sooner than, than anybody had dared think about, um, the ones who were abroad rushed home and they, they set up underground newspapers, which, which since there was no freedom of the press, quote unquote, in Ethiopia, the underground revolutionary press became the main uh, sustenance of news and information for the Ethiopian population. And in the first few years of the, the Derg, everything that the Derg tried, the, the left wound up taking advantage of and grew in popularity until it had thousands and thousands of members and really wide mass support. And uh, at some point there was a split on the left where the, uh, the, the, the all Ethiopian socialist movement decided that it would work with inside the government to push the revolution leftward. Um, and then the Ethiopian people's revolutionary party decided that it uh, had the obligation to call for um, revolutionary democracy and a, a people's provisional government and, and resolutely opposed the, the, the government, the military government. Ian, before we get into that split, I want to ask you a little bit about the formation of the EPRP and specifically how it's connected to the revolutionary movement for the liberation of Palestine, because um, the, the leftist revolutionaries from Palestine seem to have been tremendously influential in the early days in the formation of the revolutionary left in Ethiopia. Isn't that right? It is true. The revolutionary Ethiopians wanted to get aid from wherever they could find it. And um, in Algiers, they came into contact with all sorts of revolutionary movements. And they, they tried to go to China to get support um, without much success. Um, they appealed to Cuba without much success, but they found success in uh, in forging an alliance with the Palestinian guerrilla movement, and being the late '60s, early '70s, that was the 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 period when Palestinian armed struggle was really on the table, and they had camps across the Middle East uh, where revolutionaries from all over the world um, took advantage of military training, and so the EPRP forged very close ties with, uh, I believe, the PFLP and the DPFLP, and received um, weapons training and arms um, from those groups. And they had a plan to not only engage in, in urban organizing, but to set up a, a guerrilla army base in, in the rural northern areas of Ethiopia. Um, the Eritrean movement, which is tangentially related to all of this, had uh, received support and weapons from, from China for years. And, and also, I believe, um, assistance from from Palestinians, the Ethiopian government, um, the the imperial government, 
had a it, it played the the sort of uh, non-aligned double game. Uh, it was actually very very pro U.S. imperialism and was kind of a, a wedge of imperialist foreign policy in Africa. But they would play the, the sort of anti-Zionist game. However, they would also uh, they got huge amounts of military training from the state of Israel, and their um, uh, war conducted against the Eritrean rebels um, was was armed with you know napalm and terrible weapons by the Israelis and their uh, the elite Ethiopian government um, armed forces was 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 trained um, by the Israeli army. So the the EPRP felt very very much at home in this uh, this culture of revolutionary exiles. They also had connections to the um, the revolutionaries in Oman, who um, you know were were defeated in the early seventies. But for for a time, there was tremendous hope around them in the in the uh, the Arab world and the Gulf states. Um, they had um, connections there. There, it, it's kind of forgotten now, but there was there was tremendous radical intellectual ferment in Africa, and they um, uh, the founders of the EPRP you know, watched uh, the relationship of military regimes to civilian left movements over and over and over again. And they were very, very concerned about the possibilities of um, uh, the military hijacking the revolution. And um, so they, um, uh, they felt like uh, building institutions of, um, you know, sort of mass democracy and mass participation was their their best protection against some of that. And I, I don't know. Um, I don't have any kind of estimates, uh, you know, financially or volume about you know what kind of support they got from um, the various Palestinian groups. But it was it was re- it was really important when when they were trying to get support um, and and not finding it from certain corners that they that they got it from from the Palestinians and, and uh, that made them. I think uh, sort of feel a, a real profound connection there, um, and the you know the state of Israel has had a a complicated relationship to Ethiopia. It had its eyes on the the indigenous Ethiopian Jewish population, um, and just with its as with its machinations for decades over Sudan has has always felt like they had a you know, a right to interfere in uh, Ethiopian politics. And um, uh, the EPRP definitely rejected that, that, that notion. And it's interesting, too, you mentioned the headquarters in Algiers, because, of course, this is the time following the revolution in Algeria, when Algeria was in many ways a, an epicenter globally for a lot of this, for, from Black Panthers there to, you know, the international Maoist movement and so forth. I mean, that that there was some of that ferment that you're talking about on a continental scale, wasn't Absolutely. there? Absolutely. Yes, very, very much so. Um, yeah, a- a- Algiers was a, uh, it was a difficult life for them. They were, um, you know, for, for a short period anyway, they were, you know, wards of the Algerian state, but their own, they weren't the only ones. There were, you know, as you mentioned, the Black Panthers, the, uh, the EPRP founders, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, uh, sort of amazing picture of them sitting in a row next to Eldridge Cleaver and the the ambassador from the People's Republic of China. So this was it was a happening place, um, and uh, at at some point the Algerian government cracked down on all of this. But you know, for for a moment, uh, you know, it's been called the Mecca of Revolution, and that and that really was a, a a key place for them to operate from and try and get their word the word out. All right, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit about Ethiopia's experience with fascism and uh, how that related to some of the experiences of the uh, of the late 1970s. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about some imperial rivalry issues, how that related, and of course, lessons to be learned from all of this for us today. So stick with us. On the other side of the break, we'll continue the conversation with Ian Scott Horst. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Ian Scott Horst. Again, the book, Gotta Get Yourself a Copy, like Ho Chi Minh, like Che Guevara, The Revolutionary Left in Ethiopia, 1969 to 1979. Uh, I just want to make a quick note, the place to get it, foreignlanguages.press is the website. Do not go to Amazon. Do not give your money to Bezos. Go directly to the website, foreignlanguages.press is where you can get yourself a copy of this book. And by the way, it's a hefty book full of great information and it costs a measly 10 bucks so do yourself a favor get yourself a copy of the book so ian um i wanted to talk to you before we headed to the break i kind of teased it but let's discuss fascism here because ethiopia has this incredibly unique history as it pertains to fascism and um so tell us a little bit about fascism the experience with fascism in ethiopia and um and then I guess the second part of the question, maybe the meat of the question here, how that experience with fascism informed some of the perceptions of what was happening by the time of the consolidation by the dirt. Yeah, it's it's very common to use fascism as an insult for you know somebody really bad, but in Ethiopia they really understood what it was. The uh, it, Italian Empire had attempted to conquer Ethiopia in the end of the 19th century and had actually been defeated. Uh, by it was a sort of unique victory of an African army against uh, Italian imperialism. But when Mussolini seized power, uh, he came back again and uh, in, the, in the mid-1930s waged an absolutely brutal genocidal war against uh, Ethiopia, which involved the, the slaughtering of you know, something on the order of 7 to 10% of the population. Um, uh, uh, in 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 five years of occupation, he really tried to to remake the country, throwing up Italian architecture buildings all over the place, and um, they built um, they enlisted uh, a whole layer of collaborators. They napalmed villages. They killed people indiscriminately. It was really a brutal, brutal time. Um, the Ethiopian people waged uh, a really valiant struggle against this. They um, uh, were armed as a as a people after the the initial invasion defeated them on the field. They continued to wage guerrilla struggle against the Italian army for years. The emperor fled to Europe, and the Ethiopians did not forget that. Uh, as much as there's an air of heroism about him, he actually completely ran off with the money and waited the war out in in England, um, and. Uh, they, it, Ethiopians really understood the importance of weapons and the, the danger of uh, fascism to their, their lives and uh, to, to their way of life. Um, when the uh, military government uh, seized power, um, it was completely uninterested in doing anything more than paying lip service 
to the idea of popular democracy. It is, it, its mass organizations were tools of social control. Um, it's um, uh, made no attempt uh, to create, um, uh, you know, even a, 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 a sham de democracy um, and uh, dealt with opposition uh, ruthlessly. Um, shortly after the Derg seized power, it uh, up until up until this moment, at the end of 1974, everyone had been impressed with the, the total lack of, of bloodshed. But uh, it made this um, kind of uh, uh, dramatic gesture of um, executing about sixty people. Uh, including uh, some of its own generals, including a bunch of Im imperial functionaries and nobles, uh, and including some radical students. And uh, it was uh, shocking um, that you know sixty people would be would be just you know executed just like that. Um, but that turned out to be the way that the Derg uh, uh, solved its problems was through executions and um, massive waves of uh, repression, which it completely bragged about uh, for, for years up until um, about uh, late 1976, they decided that the, um, the EPRP was uh, uh, too dangerous a uh, dissenting force to tolerate. And so they accused the EPRP of being agents of imperialism. They accused them of being anarchists. They accused them of being Maoists. They accused them of being Trotskyites. They accused them of all these things. They drew up lists um, of where they all lived. And by this point, the, the, the um, Ethiopian socialist movement was now a part of the military. It was part of the government. It was like the civilian face of the military government. So this was the, the 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 sort of moment of almost civil war, where the two um, the the government supported by one part of the left uh, engaged this really um, brutal extermination campaign against the other parts of the left, um, and the EPRP really suffered tremendously. Its its leadership was uh, either assassinated in the street, captured and killed in prison, or you know fled to the countryside. And um, they believed that the the derg was in in fact fascism. They they felt the echoes of um, you know being frozen out of the political system, uh, uh, the echoes of repression, the echoes of brutality that they had felt before. They they really looked at these things and they felt that they were very very familiar. So for for them, calling the derg fascist was not. Uh, an exercise in you know finding the worst name that they could figure to call them. They they really resonated with with their own historical experience. Now, one thing that's interesting about this is that there was not a, a sense on the left in the West in the non-Ethiopian world necessarily that the that that much of what you're describing was really all that clear. In fact, if you go back and look at you know much of what was written at the time, it's actually quite complicated with many left factions, um, most of which are not in existence anymore, but many leftists uh, siding with the Derg, seeing the Derg as the the, the revolutionaries. And uh, so can you speak a little bit to the misunderstandings uh, on the left at that time and maybe how some of those have carried through to today? Well, uh, it's, it's very hard, I think, now and and I and to, to understand how complete or the what I would call revisionism on the part of uh, say the Soviet Union and its international co-thinkers were you think like well, an Ethiopian government that's calling itself Socialist Ethiopia, waving red flags, putting up posters of Lenin, like you think that that's got to be great, right? Like it's like, wow, here's a, you know, a secular, um, 
they're waving red flags around. You can lick a stamp with a picture of Lenin on the front of it. All of this sort of stuff. Like, how could that possibly be bad? Well, the 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 thing is that um, uh, in times of of struggle, there are all sorts of you know good and bad actors and socialism and revolution was the currency of the moment. And the, the Mengistu and the other leaders of the military were very, very canny. They really understood the, the popularity of, of, the, of, um, of, of leftist ideology, even on a, uh, a sort of a raw level. And they attempted to, um, well, parts of the left taught it to them and they really ran with it but um unfortunately uh, like anybody can call themselves a revolutionary communist any 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 authoritarian ruler any any military leader can say hey this is a revolution but for those of us who understand revolution as a process of popular mobilization and not only the the in effect military conflict in the real world it's also the transformation of of people's vision and understanding and things of the world so the ethiopian government quite successfully used the language of revolution to promote itself and you know, when they enlisted, you know, Fidel Castro to come in and fight U.S. imperialism, it's kind of hard to say that, oh, well, you know, that's not real. That's fucked up. Like, you know, I'm for U.S. imperialism against, you know, like that's that's terrible. The left would never say that. But it like both things could be true at 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 once. You know, the the Ethiopian government was. I actually don't think that they were as anti-imperialist as they made themselves out to be. But they were, you know, fighting a government that was involved with, that was supported by U.S. imperialism, and that was a real thing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that socialism, as we understand it to being uh, 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 the most advanced form of democracy and popular participation in society, uh, of the, the masses of population, uh, having a voice instead of, you know, the the tiny few. Um, the, the, if you actually really look at what happened, it was the tiny few of the military um, running the country, and and just using this this language and these red flags. Um, and in the end, um, the the people were not invested in their own system so that by the time that the derg fell you know the derg and socialism were wildly unpopular because everybody understood the derg and socialism to be pretty much just like what Haile Selassie had offered them with lots of famine and lots of pretty words and lots of of privileged rulers running around in limousines and gold thrones and um that that the 1970s was a particular moment for left-talking military figures who used socialism as a, 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 a lever to build support and to win support among people, but didn't actually, be, because they're, they're not actually part of the popular classes, they couldn't actually... We go to socialism like they were they were invested in the in the um perpetuation of uh the in ethiopia's cases bureaucratic capitalist state and um you know they they profited from it um uh, there's a lot of documentation about how uh you know mengistu uh, really enjoyed that you know the the palaces and the trappings of um, of rule after, you know, being, a you know, a, a, a an NCO in the beginning part of his career. So, um, it's, it is, it is 
it, it requires a certain understanding of what socialism really is to, to look at the words and say, well, I've got to go deeper. I've got to understand, you know, what was actually happening. What's behind these words? What were the intentions? What were the effects of these words? What was really happening? And I don't think that you can call uh, a government socialist that that kills what are estimated to be several hundred thousand um, uh, civilian leftists over the duration of its rule. Um, in, in, in 1977, there were the EPRP mobilized, was going to mobilize for May Day celebrations and uh, uh, thousands of, of teenage kids were um, uh, gathered in various places, painting banners and signs and preparing for the demonstrations when government death squads attacked them and killed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of, of teenagers. Like, I, I just, I don't think that that's, I don't think that's socialism. Uh, and, you know, these were, these were not counter-revolutionary children. These were, these were children, you know, committed to, um, uh, to, to socialist revolution, basically. And they, they all paid for their lives with it. Did I answer your question there? Yeah, no, absolutely. I wanted to, I was, I wanted to follow up by asking you um, to kind of wrap up our conversation. I think it would be ideal to kind of see how all of this connects to today, and maybe a better way to say that would be what, if any, lessons there are to draw from this experience. I mean, obviously, Ethiopia in in this period is a discrete historical moment. The conditions are obviously different in various parts of the world at various times. But as a general as a general concept, I'm just I notice so many similarities in reading through in reading through your book and and uh, you know kind of trying to assess this history. So many similarities to even some of my own political experiences. So I just wanted to get you to comment a little bit on that and what lessons you think there are to be drawn from this and uh, to what extent it informs our own practice. I think the first lesson that that I draw from it is that. The future is not written, and it, it, it's important to. Um, I mean, if 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 we say as revolutionaries in the twenty first century believes that there are still parts of, say, the Leninist, uh, semi Maoist ideology of of the Ethiopian revolutions or Aries or, or, you know, just other left trends today really believe that those ideologies still hold something, then we need to still be using those ideologies as a tool to attempt to organize. And because when revolutionary conjuncture hits, like the, like the world events take care of, of, of making revolutionary situations happen, but but being in the right place at the right time, with the the good intentions and the the connections to the masses, to use you know their words, um, uh, to to be willing to observe what's happening and and uh, take um, a principled. Uh, courageous stands. Um, these things are really a, a super important part of, and, and you know the 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 masses really do have amazing power. And there's, I think, I think a lot of the the world struggles in the past few years. You can see how how much power uh, the masses have. Like if you look at Egypt, you look at Sudan. Um, you look at, at Nigeria recently, you look all sorts of over the place, you see like m- amazing amounts of popular unrest and, and you see vultures waiting to leverage that popular unrest for their own purposes. Um, and so for me, what, what I learned from all of this was the, that it's possible that all that ideological training and study will come to naught if the enemy is is stronger than you are. I mean, you know, bad things happen to good people, 
but you know nothing will happen unless you prepare um, and and study and have a really clear vision of uh, what you hope happens and how you can what how how revolutionaries can help empower the people by um, uh, giving them information and giving them tools and organizing them and telling them that you know it is it is possible to actually you know win you don't have to like like um, you know we're so trained in the United States to be uh, to to choose choices that other people have pre-selected for us politically. And we think that that's a kind of democracy. And, and what I think the Ethiopian situation teaches us, at least in part, is that, you know, we, we, as, uh, the, you know, the, pe the, the, the people in struggle really have huge amounts of power at our disposal to stand up you know, not for somebody else's false choices, but, but for our own. And I, I, um, you know, Ethiopia today, very difficult political situation. I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, confident on making real specific verdicts on what's happening there today. But, uh, this book is a reminder that, um, the the people of Ethiopia can actually have a role in uh, in in fixing uh, their country and their corner of Africa, not just you know relying on the machinations of of governments and you know wielding uh, you know I mean Ethiopia today is a is a, a, a kind of a quiet battlefield um, where the United States and China and Israel. Um, and, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, other, you know, large economic players in the world are really duking it out, um, over, over some pretty serious stuff. And, uh, you know, it's very connected to, uh, to global warming and climate issues, very connected to, um, uh, uh you know, sustainable societies, um, and, um the dominant politics of our time says that you know we need uh you know respectable heroes and rich people to you know make this right for all of us and we're waiting for the right person to come on the stage when the truth of the matter is that you know that that history and and the history of the Ethiopian struggle in particular here shows us that it's really possible for um the, the people themselves to, to take control and change things and, and make stuff happen. And I, I think the, 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 some of the important lessons of my, of my book about how important it is to actually be in touch with the, um, the, the real ideological cornerstone of human liberation as the actual cause that we're fighting for um, how, how important it is to remember that that's at, at, at the basis of, of the revolutionary struggle and that the, 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 the chess game between world powers is, is just in the end uh, much less the real story about, about what is happening and what is possible in, you know, in, in that corner of Africa and the, you know, the world in general. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing and, and how much in reading through your book, how much of this relates to so many of the conflicts today. If you follow uh, the ongoing and seemingly never ending conflict between Eritrea and Ethiopia, which allegedly was resolved in 2018, but actually hasn't been, that right. continues. When you read through this book, you understand the history of that and how that comes forward to today. Similarly, with the protests of the Oromo people in Ethiopia, yeah. which have been ongoing for quite a long time now and the ethnic conflict 
conflicts there and, and, and sort of the nuances of these, of these divisions that exist within Ethiopia, which is a massive country, and uh, the Horn of Africa, which is a massive and geopolitically very significant region. So I found reading the book to be enlightening in the sense that it helped me to understand some of the issues happening today, uh, whether it's conflicts over the uh, massive dam project in Ethiopia, which is now opening up huge issues with Egypt and Sudan and elsewhere. Um, these issues have at their root much of what happened during that time period. So uh, that's one of the one of the main things I, I, I take away from that. And then also, of course, the experience for those of us who have watched movements that we've been a part of get co-opted. I mean, right. this is a very universal kind of experience. Anyone who participated in Occupy could probably speak to it or yes. and, and relate to it. Anybody who's participated in just about anything in the United States with vis-a-vis Democrats could probably talk about how things get co-opted. So it was interesting reading about how a revolution gets co-opted and the, the sort of the mechanisms by which that happens and also some of the unique historical circumstances. So anyway, I just wanted to congratulate you on on, on the book, Ian. I think it's a, it's a tremendous accomplishment, something, uh, a piece of scholarship that's been badly needed. So I would recommend everybody, again, check out the book, Like Ho Chi Minh, Like Che Guevara, The Revolutionary Left in Ethiopia, 1969 to 1979. That is available from foreign languages is press foreign languages dot press is the website. Ian Scott Horst is the author. You can also find an excellent book review from our friend Doug Green at Counterpunch Plus all about this book as well. So uh, Ian, thanks again for coming on Counterpunch, for writing the book and for talking to us. I enjoy myself and uh, I hope your readers enjoy my book. Thank you so much. Listeners, as always, we will chat again real soon.